Father, one of our great desires as a church family is to raise up a generation that knows Jesus, loves Jesus, and lives for Jesus in their own generation. So, um, so I pray even the time that they spend this evening together, um, let's pray that gathering with the church is something our children love to do. And, uh, and I pray that as they do so, they, they find that they are very much loved, prayed for, cared about, and encouraged here. Father, I thank you for the things that you taught me when I was a child, and, and they continue to bear fruit today. So help us never to underestimate the importance of the early years of life. And uh, we know that every child is being discipled somehow, being made a disciple of something. We pray that we're making disciples of Jesus among our children. And now as we turn to, uh, to your word, I pray that you'd use Scripture to speak truth to us in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 1, we're going to study together this evening, verses 57 through 66. So let's go on and read that together. We're going to pick up right where we left off from Sunday morning. We're going to go back to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. Strikes me as a home that I would love to spend time in. I don't know about you, but... Isn't it great, what a great encouragement to spend time with people who've got some decades of experience and love Jesus. I don't know how many decades I'm going to have on the earth, but I pray if I get seven or eight of them, that when I'm that age, it'll be evident that I love the Lord. That was true for Elizabeth and Zechariah, and it says in verse 57, now, something they didn't expect the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. It's a great thing when you can rejoice when other people rejoice. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. It's kind of what was done in those days. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called Jan, John. I just said it in the old way, I guess. Anybody know what his name means? We'll get to that. It's important. That's why they're going to name him that, by the way. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. You might remember that um, Zechariah can't speak because of his unbelief. He'd been, you know, this little sentence that he's got, nine months plus, he can't speak. How would that go for you, by the way? Not until September you could say a word from this morning. Or not actually this evening, right? So, One thing you'd be able to do if that were the case is you'd be able to do a whole lot of listening And I just want to say that would actually be pretty good for your soul. So, he got a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him 
Well, you, you'll recall if you happen to be here on Sunday that we talked about the, the, the value uh, and the gift of godly friendships. And Elizabeth was exactly who Mary needed at this time in her life. And Mary was exactly who, uh, which one did I say Elizabeth needed at this time in, in her life. And we noted from the previous verses that a godly friend is someone who loves us and can be trusted at all times. I hope you really have friends like that. I hope you have friends like that here, for that is what the church should be. And a godly friend is a friend who's full of the Holy Spirit, a friend who offers counsel and encouragement from the Lord. Now listen to me, if the counsel you receive is not from the Lord, it's not good or godly counsel. A friend of the Holy, a friend of uh, a godly friend full of the Holy Spirit is a joyful person, kind of person that helps us recenter our life on Christ. And we ended by saying a godly friend on Sunday, is also one who fortifies you for the days that are to come. Look at verse 56 again. Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. And we sort of ended noting that there was a lot waiting for Mary once she returned home. But a godly friend can fortify you for the days that are to come. And when I got home Sunday afternoon and was sort of thinking about the passage that we had studied, something pretty obvious Uh, came to my mind, but I hadn't quite thought of it, and that is when Mary and Elizabeth were encouraging one another, they had a lot in common. Of course, they were family, but they also have pretty remarkable things going on in their lives from the hand of the Lord. But one thing they also have in common is that the sons that they carried in their wombs, John the Baptist and Jesus respectively, are going to be executed, murdered, beheaded, and crucified. And so I just want to reiterate when I say that a godly friend fortifies you for the days that are to come, these two ladies really go through some things, agonizing things. And that's where I want to start our first point tonight is obedience is often agonizing. Is Jesus obedient to the Father always? Does he live an easy, comfortable life? Not at all. John the Baptist, Jesus, in fact, says he's the best. He's the greatest. We'll study him more on Sunday morning, actually. But for now, it's sufficient to say that Jesus said he's the greatest man born of woman. Question. Was his life easy or comfortable? And and I want to pause here because increasingly in Christian circles, so-called Christian circles, as I see the books published, listen to the podcasts, I increasingly am hearing what I could only call false teaching on this issue. I increasingly hear it sort of suggested that if you live a life of obedience to the Lord, the Lord's favor will be upon you. Just hang with me because that's important what we mean by that. Because Obeying the Lord and His favor and blessing be upon you is often implied to mean things that would have been alien and foreign to John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist walk in obedience to the Lord? Yes. Was his life successful? Was he wealthy? Was the Lord on his side? Did he live a victorious life? Now it's important that we allow the Bible to define those terms. Amen? Because I frequently hear Christianity taught in our day in terms that are basically camouflage, self-help, and fulfillment message 
peppered with a few Bible verses here and there. Dean and Sarah, in his book, Getting Over Yourself, Trading in Believe in Yourself Religion for Christ-Centered Christianity, I'm just blessed by the title of the book, says, if we're not careful, we can turn legitimate confidence in our victory in Christ into the idea that God wants us to walk in earthly victory as we define it for ourselves. It's certainly true that God cares greatly about our well-being and wants us to have an abundant life, but so often the way we perceive blessing and victory is not the same as the Bible's definitions of blessing and victory. And the American church has largely fallen prey to the idea that God being for our good is for our worldly good. Now, the favor of the Lord is upon John. It is. John the Baptist lives a life of victory and triumph, yes, But friends, favor and blessing from God are knowing God and loving and treasuring Him above all things. That is the favor of God. Favor and blessing from God are having joy in the Lord no matter the circumstances I face in life, even if it means I end up in Herod's prison with not the threat of having my head cut off, but it actually happening. We have this idea that if I obey the Lord, it will be smooth and painless. And there's a word for that idea, false. It's not true. It's not true. Obedience is often agonizing. In fact, unfortunately, sometimes when uh, we're obeying the Lord and it starts to be difficult, we, we can even begin to assume that I must not be going in the right direction. So I just want to encourage you that obedience is often agonizing. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound very encouraging. But I also want to say the agony will always be superseded by the joy to be found in the obedience to the Lord. Because obeying the Lord leads you to the greatest blessing that there is, and that is knowing the Lord. There's often not an immediate payoff to obedience. That's also a difficult lesson for us because we are an immediate gratification generation. But there's often not an immediate payoff to obedience. And much of your obedience to the Lord is not going to result in applause from people around you, but a Eye-rolling, gasp, laughter, slander. So again, much of our obedience to the Lord will be agonizing. But John is great in the eyes of the Lord. He's not going to be popular, wealthy, or live a long, healthy life. And that's a check for our spirit because that's often what we hope most for our children. Want most for our children. Want most for our grandchildren. I was reading a novel recently entitled The Lincoln Highway, and sometimes you'll read something in a book, and I said, I've, I've thought that before, but I was never able to articulate it as well as I just read it. And in the, in the book, there's a scene, I won't rehash the plot, but there's a young man, he's been away from home for a long time, and he's just come home, and he's walking up the stairs, and he sees at the top of the stairwell a picture of his younger self when he's a boy, seven or eight years old, and he's seated in a boat between his parents. And in the book, the novel, it simply says, the funny thing about a picture, a photograph, is that while it knows everything that happened up until the moment it's been taken, it knows absolutely nothing about what will happen next. Ever look at a photograph and that thought comes to your mind? And yet, once the picture has been framed and hung on a wall, what you see when you look at it closely are all the things about to happen the things that were unanticipated and unreversible. A 
If you just hold your spot there in Luke, that scene of joy, rejoicing with her, that's a snapshot of sorts. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me the at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Obedience can be agonizing. I would tell you, though, that I'd rather be John the Baptist today than Herod, wouldn't you? momentarily agonizing. Maybe that's the better way to say it. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, says, This is the portion we ought to seek for our children. It's the best portion, the happiest portion, the only portion that can never be lost and will endure beyond the grave. The hand of the Lord is a thousand times better than the hand of Herod. One is weak, foolish, and uncertain, Caressing today and beheading tomorrow, the other is almighty, all-wise, and unchangeable. Where it holds, it holds forevermore. Well, obedience can be agonizing. The second thing I feel like we can see in the passage is God can do glorious things without doing them the way he did in the past. God can do glorious things without doing them the way he did them in the past. Now, let's, let's think through this together. What God does never changes, or what his purpose is. What is God's purpose, by the way? To bring glory to his own name. That's his purpose. You want to live a life of joy and fulfillment? Align your life with God's purpose. God's purpose is to bring glory to his own name, not your own name, not your name, his name. How God does that is always through the might of the Holy Spirit. But the specifics of how that plays out can change over time. Just hang with me so I can explain what I mean. There's a conflict that goes on in this passage, isn't, isn't there? There's like, if you read the passage, it's like excitement, and then there's like a slam on the brakes. Like, wait, what? The excitement is a baby's been born, and we never thought Zachariah and Elizabeth were going to have a baby. And then when they have a baby, it's just sort of this current going of assumption. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah. Now, quick, who is the they? The they goes back to verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. These are her friends. These are her family members. These are the people that are excited for her excitement. And then they just have a huge assumption, and that the assumption is that they're going to name the child Zechariah, but they don't name the child Zechariah, right? Now, I can testify to this. When you and your wife are expecting a baby, there are a few common questions that come up quickly. What's question number one? Boy or girl? This is pretty cool. Elizabeth knew it was a boy long before ultrasounds. 
When's the baby due? And then you know the big one, don't you? What are you going to name the baby? Well, y'all, this past fall, Julie and I and our children spent hours talking about what we are going to name our baby. And y'all, people have some strong opinions about this kind of thing. Like there's suggestions. And then a few more suggestions. And then I've even got some good friends of mine, when they're expecting, they don't say anything about what they're going to name the baby. You know why? Because they don't really want other people's input or feedback. Maybe that's the nice way of saying it. Now let's read again verse 39 or 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, some of the things that are going on in verse 59 are being done in obedience to Scripture, and some of them are not. Which ones are and which ones are not? Because here's the deal. When it comes to families and when it comes to church families, when it comes to, to uh, people who have an interest in the Lord and love one another, sometimes things get a little bit tied up and mixed up, don't they? We've got traditions, family heritage, and commands of the Lord. And it is so incredibly important that we don't get those things knotted up as if they're synonymous. We track them together? So God can do some glorious things, but he's not bound by how he did those glorious things in the past. So we've got the heritage, we've got the tradition, and we do have obedience to the Lord tied up here together. And in the Jewish families of the day, there's just an assumption that this long prayed for, can't believe he's actually here, firstborn son, will be named for his father. And it's like, like they're not even discussing it. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. As a matter of fact, there's probably some of the people that are there that are already calling him Zechariah. And then, verse 60, but his mother answered, no. All right, we're going to practice something here together. On the count of three, I want you to say the word no. You ready? One, two, three. No, I really want you to. Don't tell me that. That was supposed to be a joke, but you needed it. All right. It wasn't a good joke. I understand. Let's do it one more time. On the count of three, you say the word no. One, two, three. So you can say it. Some of us have a really hard time saying that word, don't we? Like, really hard time saying that word. Especially when it comes to heritage and traditions. But you're going to have to learn to say that word if, often in your life, you're going to obey the Lord. If we're not careful, we'll have a harder time saying no to the expectations and assumptions of people around us than we do saying no to the Lord. Because this is true. Tradition, heritage, family, obedience to the Lord, they can get all kind of tied up and it starts to feel like one is the other when it's really not. Now, 
Elizabeth is not saying no in order to be petty or selfish. She is saying no in order to obey the Lord. So when we say no, we want to root our nose in the Lord. And not just because you just want to say no, right? Just to be, be uncooperative. That's not what Elizabeth is doing. And when she says no, look what happens. She says, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. You can tell that people are a little bit rattled and worked up and upset about this, aren't they? In fact, they made signs to his father. They said, all right, well, we'll get Zechariah in here and he'll straighten this thing out. So they go get Zechariah after that none of your relatives is called by this name. Here's the way we often say it. We've never done things like this before. Now, friends, 42 years old, I've spent uh, well over half my life in the Baptist church. And I've heard the statement, we've never done things this way before, before. And you've got to be really careful with that statement. Question, do you have a desire to see God work in your life, in your church, in this city, in this nation, in a way you've never seen before? And if the answer to that is yes, then you have to put away allegiance to just the way things have always been done before. And nobody loves tradition like I do. I love to read history and honor, of course, honor those that have gone before us. But traditions are good things that become bad things when they become governing things. Does that make sense? Traditions are good things that become bad things when they become governing things. There will be times in your life when you have to pick between tradition and obedience, and it matters much which is most important to you. They look at Zechariah, and they'll think, they think, again, they assume that he's going to be their ally in this. But he says, he gets a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Now, where do they get that from? Well, go back with me to Luke chapter 1. Verse number 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. That's the angel and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring to you this good news. And behold, 
you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now it goes on to say the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. His name is John. It's John in English, Ian in Scottish. Evan in Welsh, Juan in Spanish, Sean in Irish, Giovanni in Italian, Jan in Greek, Giannis in French, Ivan in Russian. We could go on. It's a, it's a name. It's a name, isn't it? But do you know what the name means? The name means the Lord is gracious. It's his name. The Lord is gracious. So the heritage and tradition of Elizabeth and Zechariah are powerful things, but they recognize the Lord is demonstrating His grace in a clear way. Now, listening to the Lord through His Word and holding His Word unto obedience is, is, our, is our greatest aim. And that brings us to third Last point for this evening is that God does not discard us when we disobey. He restores us. God does not discard us when we disobey. He restores us. Now, uh, we just read the verses there in Luke chapter 1. And sometimes you might read Luke 1. I think we talked about this on Sunday that, that uh, Zechariah says, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. And, and, and he, he sort of gets this punishment Right, and, and yet Mary, in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a, a, a virgin? And she doesn't get any sort of, you know, punishment, if that's the right, the right word. So, so why? What's the difference? Why, why does Zechariah kind of get, you can't speak for nine months, and then Mary is, is because Zechariah's situation is precedented. I mean, we can go back to Genesis and see that God did this in Abraham and in Sarah's life, right? This has happened before. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son is unprecedented. Never happened before. Never will happen again. Totally different. And, and, and then also what's going on here in Zechariah, and if you've read through Luke chapter 1, and he's chosen by law to go into the uh, uh, temple and offer sacrifice and prayers of incense, and that's where the angel shows up. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. We already know he's well advanced in years. A priest serving in his position might, no guarantee, but might get the opportunity to offer the incense. And then after he's done that, what would happen is he would come out from offering the incense and he'd stand in front of everybody that was gathered there and give a message, give a sermon, preach. And that's why when he comes out, verse 23, uh, 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah. Man, he would have thought about the message to give his whole life just about. I mean, this is like the, the, the big moment he's prepared for. So he walks out. How long do you think it took before they realized he can't speak? Probably awkward, isn't it? Like, man, he's really going for dramatic effect here. 
And, and then he kept making signs to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. I mean, I'd love to see how he pulled that off. I mean, that's pretty good. Missed his chance. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And when it's time for him to speak, he can't speak. But friends, God doesn't discard us when we disobey. Disobedience is no small matter. But God doesn't discard us. He restores us. Verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, we'll study his message a little bit later on this month, Lord willing. But I just want you to see that he that he had another, he was given another chance. Now, I bet 10,000 priests gave 10,000 sermons in the scenario in which Zechariah was unable to speak, and we don't remember any of their words, but we have here preserved in Scripture forever what Zechariah did have to say, because this is important. When God, not just that he discards us when we, he doesn't discard us when we disobey, he's not restoring us back to where we were, he's restoring us beyond where we could have ever been. So for nine months, Zechariah cannot speak. Nine months of quiet and solitude. Three of those months, Mary is there with the family. Nine months to have the Lord work on his heart and on his mind. And it's not just that Zechariah gets a second chance. It's that he gets a better chance. Nine months And you know what I think most resounds in his heart over the nine months? The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Obedience can be agonizing, but the Lord is gracious. God can do glorious things without doing them in the exact way he did them in the past because... The Lord is gracious. God does not discard us when we disobey. He restores us because the Lord is gracious. And it is true that that baby boy... 30 years later. Man, there is a wicked king who cuts his head off. But as soon as John's life ends in this life and he steps into the next, do you know what I'm convinced resounds in his soul? The Lord is gracious. Does it resound in yours? Let's pray together before we go this evening. I'm going to pray for us and uh, we'll come back together next Wednesday night for worship again. And 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Father, I pray that you'd use your word tonight to teach us true things, that obedience can be agonizing. If we were to take a photograph of our life tonight and look at it in 10 years there are things around the corner that we do not anticipate we do not expect but we do trust you I pray in Jesus name that we are a church family who desires the favor of the Lord, believing the favor of the Lord is knowing you for who you really are so that our joy is deep and full and abiding and sustained no matter the circumstances of our lives. Father, we pray in this church we are fortifying one another for the days that are to come. Help us not to be boxed in by unnecessary allegiance to tradition if that's a barrier to obedience to the Holy Spirit today. And I pray in Jesus' name for those in the room this evening who really need to hear that when we fail, when we sin, when we disobey, You do not discard us. You do the work of restoring us. So use the quiet and solitude, whether that's of nine months or 90 minutes, as we sit and listen to you, that your word would bring life. And I pray that we'd know that when you restore us, you don't just put us back to where we were, You go far beyond that. Your purpose is to glorify your name 
and that those kinds of works of restoration glorify your name. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our church family. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. We're going to head out in just a minute. I, I, I did want to say one thing about next Wednesday night. We're going to meet together like this again. But next Wednesday, when we get to this time and we're kind of dismissing, we're going to have a fellowship in the fellowship hall. Uh, I'd love for you to bring some Christmas snacks. To me, that means sausage balls. But, but you can, you can, you can, cre- you can uh, enlarge that uh, description. And if you just bring some things, it's pretty laid back. We're just going to spend some time together in the, in the fellowship hall uh, Wednesday, next Wednesday after the, after the service.